my, 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 we have such an exciting episode of the Optimistic Advocate podcast for you today. We're going to talk about race. We're going to talk about racism. We're going to talk about how a behavioral health organization approaches the topic of racism. And equally important, we're going to hear the personal perspective from a mother of two adult sons, a young man who has experience with the mental health system, and a mental health services provider on how they personally deal with the issue of racism as it impacts their work and their lives living in Broward County, Florida. Now, before we dive into the episode, I want to give big time props to the Broward Behavioral Health Coalition, who is sponsoring this episode today. When they approached us and asked if they could sponsor an episode that focused on racism, we said, absolutely. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the Broward Behavioral Health Coalition. In 2011, the state of Florida's Department of Children and Families designated the Broward Behavioral Health Coalition, BBHC for short, as Broward's local managing entity. BBHC is responsible for contracting, monitoring, clinical quality oversight, and performance improvement of the DCF state-funded behavioral health services. One Community Partnership is a SAMHSA system of care grant contracted through the Broward County government to BBHC. And it's this grant that is sponsoring this podcast. So much appreciation. Hey, after you listen to this podcast, I encourage you to check the show notes and learn more about the Broward Behavioral Healthcare Coalition. We have three amazing individuals with us today. We have Tiffany Lawrence, a licensed marriage and family therapist who works at Broward Behavioral Health Coalition as the project director for the Broward County's One Community Partnership Three System Care SAMHSA grant. Joining Tiffany in the discussion today is Damas Schaffer. Damas was born in Haiti and he's lived in South Florida for over 20 years. Damas is a motivated young man who, as he says, does not let his mental illness stop him from being productive. Damas is an artist and an illustrator, and I've had a chance to look at some of his work, and it's incredible. In fact, we're going to include some examples of his work in the show notes so you can take a look at the work he does. But through his work as an artist, uh, he describes the opportunity to show others that strength lies in pushing forward and doing what you love, despite what obstacles may stand in your way. And the third member of our conversation today is Erica Ricketts. Erica is a native of Jamaica, and she's uh, lived in South Florida for almost three decades. Erica is the CFO at Henderson Behavioral Health. Erica currently serves as the chair of the Florida Council for Behavioral Health Workgroup, and she's won many awards, but won Notable award recently was the Mental Health Association of Southeast Florida's EPIC Award. And you're going to hear in this podcast why Erica Ricketts is indeed EPIC. So it's going to be a great podcast. I began by asking Tiffany Lawrence about the makeup of Broward County and how she as a professional mental health provider was navigating what is a very intense national dialogue about racism in America. Here's what she had to say. So Broward County is a really diverse community. It's the second largest county in Florida. 
And so we have a mixture of black residents. We have white residents. We have people from the Caribbean. So we have a, a high percentage of people from Jamaica, the Bahamas, Haiti. So it's really a mixture of, it's a melting pot. How we say America is a melting pot. Broward County is a melting pot. We have these different cultures that are living together and learning how to work together. And so that's pretty much what Broward is. Ever since the horrific murder of George Floyd, the entire nation has had the critical topic of racial injustice at the forefront of conversation. You're providing services to people in the second largest county in Florida, which means my guess is you really have your finger on the pulse of how the community is grappling not only with George Floyd's death, but with the larger systemic issues that his death raised about racial injustice. And I'm fascinated to know how you as a mental health professional are addressing this with your staff, with the other agencies who work with you and for you, and personally. So I think um, for me, I'm excited to be working at um, BBHC because BBHC is standing firm with the understanding that, hey, we don't support racism. That's not what we're here for. And that affects mental health. And so what we've been doing is we've been offering, because we have these 33 providers underneath us, we're going to model whatever behavior it is that we want the providers in our network to model, right? So we've been offering undoing racism, dismantling racism training. We've been starting conversations with staff about how they've been affected by it and kind of having conversations about what we should be doing as a agency and as a network. So that's been a benefit for me to be working at BBHC, to be able to have you know leadership that allows that conversation to take place and to say, hey, we know that some people may not be okay. We're checking in and then we want to hear what should we be doing. And so BBHC has been really receptive to different staff and different ideas that we've had. And so they've been moving forward as an agency with, now let's train our network or let's talk to our network provider so that we can keep this moving forward. You mentioned that staff come to you with questions and concerns. What are the kinds of things that they're raising as challenges? I think the first thing is when you open the door to allow staff to talk about their own opinions, because you have a lot of staff who may be Black or person of color. And the first thing is to check on your staff, right? Because yes, we're professionals, but also humans. So if we have sons, if we have nephews, if we have fathers, whoever it could be, we're watching the news and we're seeing what's happening. And yes, some of us are affected, even as professionals. So once you open that door, what I've noticed is once we have these conversations, you know, how are you doing? How are you really doing? People start to say, not doing okay. I'm concerned about my son. I'm concerned about my brother. People of all races start to say that, hey, I'm concerned with what I'm seeing. So then different questions are, well, what can I do when I'm working with, you know, a young black person? Should I be asking them? Should I be talking to them about race? Or what happens if they're uncomfortable with me as a therapist and I'm I'm not black? Or should I be referring black youth to other black therapists? So it's kind of those are the questions like, how do I handle working with a person who may not be comfortable with me? Or how do I even talk about race when I'm not comfortable talking about it? So we've been hearing a lot of questions. 
some providers have been asking our staff to come and talk to their staff about racism and what they should be doing as an organization. So I think a lot of people right now are wanting to know what they should be doing to move forward and to make safe places for the people that they serve. So Tiffany, when people come to you, what do you say? So the first thing I do is the main thing I focus on is trying to create a safe place for people of color. Whatever your personal opinion is, you leave it outside of the room, especially if it's something that, you know, we know it's going to be controversial. So when we think about if a client comes to you and they say, you know, they're affected by people who say all all lives matter, you wouldn't then say, well, I believe all lives matter. We understand that. But in that moment, what would that do? That would create more damage for that person who feels like, hey, this is affecting me, right? So what I've been doing is talking to people about, hey, these are things that you should probably keep to yourself if those are your beliefs and focus on that person and whatever trauma it is that they're experiencing. So take yourself out of that picture and focus on what that person is experiencing. That's been the main thing. The the main thing is creating a safe place like you would for any other situation for the person that you're working with. When we create these safe places, it's not our, our job to tell them how to feel, right? or to tell them how they should be reacting, it's our job to make sure that they're comfortable enough to express themselves. So for me, that's been the main focus that I've been promoting is, hey, let's promote safe places for Black people, people of color who are experiencing and seeing these things on television so that they're, for one, able to come and feel comfortable to speak to you about these things. Do you have a regular check-in time? Do you have to do a group check-in? Because I know a lot of our listeners are in your position, uh, right? And are, are wondering, you know, should we set up a regular video check-in or is it all one-on-one or, or how do you do that? So we are working on setting up a regular check-in. One thing that we want to do is we want to create an equity and cultural linguistic competency learning community. And so we have a lot of committees in Broward County who are working on racism in silos, pretty much, you know, racism within the child network system, implicit bias trainings over here, right? But we don't have a place where we can all come to learn and to check in with each other and to learn, get resources. So we want to create a platform where we're able to meet with each other. We're thinking about quarterly. It may need to be more based on what's happening right now. but then to also be able to share resources with each other. So we're working on that. Yeah. Damas, let's, let's uh, turn to you for, for a minute. So, you know, you've heard Tiffany talk about from the professional end and working with, with clients. How about from your perspective as a young man living in Broward County who, who has experience with the mental health system? What, what do you want mental health professionals to know? Well, a lot of people may not notice about me, but I've been through a lot of things, especially Henderson Behavioral Health has helped me a lot because they're supplying me with my medication. They're supplying me with support. And BBHC and South Florida Wellness Network has been helping me a lot. And I want to let people know that it's okay to seek help, especially when they're going through these tough times. It's okay to, you know, ask for support. If you're feeling that you're not okay, then it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to, you know, reach out and ask for support, especially in these tough times where racial injustice is amplifying more distress and it's having a tough impact on mental health. It could cause breakdowns, you know, cause panic attacks. So help is there. Help is there. Just look up for local resources, ask, you know, go online, you know, 
type in local mental health support. And I'm sure it's there through Henderson, through BBHC, through many other programs. I'm sure I don't even know about, but I know it's there. When I was at Rainbow Village, it's a special residential treatment facility somewhere in Lauder Hill. During the daytime, I used to go to Nine Muses Art Center and go there for to draw. And, you know, even though it's for the more older folks, they accepted youth, you know, with mental health problems, too. So I was there drawing, drawing five days a week, just going there and just having fun, you know, just taking my mind off of things. Having a hobby, especially like art, gets you, gets you your mind away from from things that are happening in the world. Just having a hobby just to keep your mind off of things, that really that really helps. That's what I believe. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, every day in the news, there's the topic of racial injustice is front and center. And, and, and a lot of the focus is on what's happening to young black men being singled out, you know, with police or, or, you know, other aspects of the community. Can, has that happened to you? And if so, can you talk about it and how you've, you know, how it impacted you? Well, I've had meetings with the police ever since I was a young, young child, um, ever about around age of seven. I actually had a gun pointed at me at the age of seven. And from that on, the way I see the police is just I'm, I'm totally I'm just totally afraid of them. Every time I see them, even if good intention, bad intentions, I see them and I just. I'm just stuck, just like stuck like a deer in the headlights, just just afraid, just frozen. And I feel like if I do something like that looks out of the ordinary, I'll, you know, just reach for a, like reach for my book bag or, you know, if I'm, if I'm stopped and I get shot, you know, it's, it's frightening seeing and seeing that in the news, in the media, seeing that in social media, it makes me even more scared because that could happen to me. That could happen to my little brothers because I have brothers. That could happen to my cousins, my, any of my family members. And it's, it's just scary. You know, Damas, um, I really appreciate you sharing that. And, I, and, I, and I'm sitting here thinking I'm a white male and I have no frame of reference for, for your experience. Zero. Zero. I mean, and, and my son has no frame of reference for your experience. What would you say to white people in America, to, to what they could do uh, to help them kind of get an understanding of, of what it is you go through? What I can say is just ask, ask for just how it feels. You may never be in our shoes. You don't know how it feels to be in our shoes, but just ask, try to educate yourself, you know? Try to have some sort of empathy. That That's very, that's very, empathy is very powerful. Just ask and learn and try to support us. If you're in a position that can help, try to help because that's the, that's the only way we're all humans. We we all bleed red. So just try to find ways to de-escalate things. If, if for instance, if, if a white kid is with his black kid friend or just try to, you know, say officer, he's my friend. He never does. He never did anything. And just try to be in the way because this may be crazy, but once an officer sees a different color, that's not um, black, but it's white, you're more likely to stand down or try to understand, you know? I have to tell you, Damas, speaking your truth is so powerful. Your words are so powerful and so important, especially at this time, because 
you know, we have this opportunity to make change and uh, it's not going to happen if people don't take that second step, like you're asking. What's the impact of this huge, enormous reality of racial injustice? What's the impact on your daily life? I mean, you know, you mentioned that, that you like a deer in the headlights sometimes, you know, if you see police. Take us through a typical day of Damas. You know, what are the kinds of things that you encounter that people listening to this podcast could maybe start paying a little bit better attention to? Um, what I see, I try, to be honest with you, I try to stay home as most as much as possible because it's it's frightening outside. Like I, it's it's crazy because I, I try to avoid it. I try to avoid every 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 kind of every kind of conflict. I try to avoid it. I'm more of a. There has to be a different way, you know. There has to be. I I don't I don't like conflict whatsoever because I know it can escalate to any types of any type of thing because. People are raised differently. There's people, they, they don't care what happens to them. They just want to attack. And there's just people who want to defend and just people who want to avoid things, you know? Like, I know it's, it's, gonna end, it's not going to end well. And I'm the type of person that avoids every type of thing because I know that I'm not in a good position in life to mess up because I'm afraid of messing up. And that makes me afraid of taking risks for everything. That has affected me. Like, my mental, like, it, it makes me not confident. It makes me not motivated to do a lot of things. So seeing that, seeing what's going on in the world, it just, it has a big toll on me mentally, you know? All I do is just focus on one thing. Like if I go to Walmart and a, a person, a different person, whether it's a person of color, whether a person of, you know, that's white, I'm like, and we, if there's something that's happening, like a conversation, like a little conflict, I'm like, I'm like, I'm so, I tell them I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. And I go on my way. Because I know if the cops get involved or if the person does something di um, you know, dangerous, you know, it's going to be all on me and how it's going to affect me. So I, I just avoid everything. Oh, Damas, there's such power to your words, such power. I, I have to turn to Erica, who's a, who's a mom. Uh, we'll talk about your professional part in a minute, but I just feel compelled. You know, you mentioned earlier your mom, one of your sons is Damas's age. What comes to mind when you hear Damas talk? It is scary and it is daunting because it is an area, as a parent, your primary role is to protect and to create an environment where your children, regardless of their age, feel comfortable and they feel protected and they feel they're able to be their, their true self, for want of a better word. And there's a phrase in the black community where we say, when white America gets a cold, black America gets pneumonia. And this is the perfect example of that. It affects us in everyday life, in every facet of our life. But this particular social environment with racism is bringing that to the forefront, especially for parents. So think about yourself as a parent, especially a first time parent, the anxiety and the stressors that come with that. And as a black parent, you have to multiply that a couple of hundred times in general. As the parent of a black male, that needs to be exponentially multiplied again because you're dealing with the stress of being a parent, the stress of being a black parent, and the stress of being the black parent of a black child that is male. I remember when I was pregnant, 
the elation that comes with being pregnant kind of gets deflated when you do that sonogram and you realize I'm having a son because you think about everything that's going to go along with it. You think of the burden that your this child is going to be placing for the rest of your life. And this was 20 something years ago. Instead of things getting better, they're actually getting worse. So whereas you may have said, okay, things are what they are now, but by the time he becomes an adult, the environment will be better and the world will be kinder to him. That's not the case. So that in and of itself is also scary. As a parent, it affects every facet of your being because you think about even naming your child. My husband and I were both avid readers. We loved Khalil Gibran, the poet. So we said if we had a son, we would name him Khalil. Then we questioned, are we doing him an injustice by giving him the name Khalil? Is his resume going to be put to the bottom of a pile? Is he going to be the target of bias? Is he going to be the target of racism? Is he, how is it going to impact his life? And when you have to think about the name of your child, when you have to think about where you live, before I, we moved into a neighborhood, we researched the police department to see what their record was with interacting with minorities. We researched to see how many resources were within the community that addressed minority issues. We researched the demographics of the neighborhood itself to make sure that we weren't putting ourselves in a situation where we would, for want of a better word, stand out. So the fear and the anxiety that comes, it takes away from some of the pleasure you should have every step of the way with every rite of passage. So you think about the elation that should come when your child is of the age that they're ready to drive and they're responsible and you would love for them to be able to drive and to say, oh, run to the store and get me X, Y, Z. But you also think about the fact that if he goes and he makes one mistake and he gets pulled over by a police officer, you could be getting a call from a coroner. So you think about, do I want to delay teaching him to drive? Do I want to teach him to drive, but be very cautious? So many things go into play that impact the way you raise them and the way you allow them to function in society. So it's very, it's a multifaceted mishmash of just chaos, confusion, uncertainty, anxiety, stress. Every, and as a parent, you end up passing that on to your child. And Damas, I thought about what you said when you said you are stressed and you don't want to leave home it's not sustainable for you to be in that way long-term because it's going to manifest itself in physical ailments and as well as mental health ailments. So we now wonder why African-Americans are impacted more by high blood pressure, by a lot of other things in the society. A lot of that can be attributed to the fact that our lifestyle is of such that we live a stressful life every day. Just living is stressful for us. So that contributes in, in and of itself to the additional stressors that we're faced with. Yeah. Can I ask you, Erica? So I guess it was uh, about 10 years ago. And, and you know, and I, I, like I said, obviously I'm a white guy, uh, consider myself uh, enlightened, which is probably the most dangerous kind of white guy to be uh, because you get comfortable. And I was at dinner with friends, a dear friend who lived in Washington, D.C., and we're having a great dinner, right? And their son was, I think he was 18 at the time, uh, was going to a football game. And we're having this great dinner. And as he's leaving, without breaking step in tone of the conversation or anything, 
his mom said, okay, what's, what do you do? And he said, I, I, I get down, I put my hands up, you know, they went through the mm -hmm. whole thing and I'm watching this. Now we're, we're having this great dinner. We're just hanging out and talking. Everything's good. Right. And I think about the comment you made when white America gets a cold, black America gets pneumonia. And I thought, first, I didn't know what was going on. And then they explained to me when he left, they mm -hmm. said, Scott, this is every day. Yeah. We do this every day because we can guarantee he's going to get pulled over. And that it's just fact. You can say, oh, it's an exaggeration. It's not. No, not at all. And, and, and I was, and, and that has stayed with me ever since. I, I really feel like every white American should have to have that experience of mm -hmm. just watching the talk uh, because it, it just changed things for me. Can, do you have the talk with your sons? We, we do it multiple times. Um, Ironically, I was having dinner with a couple of white friends the other day and that conversation came up and I said to them, I said, when you're in a white household and you refer to the talk, you are referring to talking to your child about sex or about sexual responsibility. Yes. If you're in a black community or in a room with black parents and you refer to the talk, that's not the first thing that comes to mind for us. The first thing that comes to mind for us is a talk that's going to keep you alive and the talk that's going to prevent us from getting a call from a coroner and the talk that's going to prevent you from being brutalized or victimized when you're out there. So the talk for us involves telling our kids, male and female, but especially male. And for me, it took on a special meaning because my boys are not short. My older son is six foot five. My younger son is six feet. So, you know, we said to them, if and when you are pulled over and you step out of a car, right away, the perception is going to be that you are an intimidating presence. Research has also shown that our kids are perceived to be older than they are. So when you think about the young man about maybe four or five years ago was killed in the park because he had the toy gun. The police officer said he thought he was about 18. He was 12. So the perception is that our kids are older than they are. The perception is that they are overly aggressive. So you try to raise your child to be assertive without being perceived to be aggressive. You try to have them be respectful without being submissive. You try to have them being aware of their surroundings and aware of unfair treatment without having a chip on their shoulder. And you're putting this kind of responsibility on a child when they're in their formative years and already dealing with hormonal changes, already dealing with peer pressure, and you're adding this level on top of that now. So when we have the talk, it's about you're learning to drive. It's, sometimes it's even before you drive because as society is now, that talk, is being had earlier and earlier in life. So whereas it used to be that you would have that talk when they were 15 or 16 or getting ready to drive, you have to have that talk with kids from their seven. Damas said it. He, when he was seven, he had a gun pointed at him. So he needs to know from that age how to react when this happened. You can't run. You can't move too fast. You can't question too much. You can't, you, you can't, do the normal things that you would do. Your normal reaction when you're in a situation like that is to be panicked and stressed. 
then that police officer might say, yeah, you looked nervous. You looked like you were up to no good. You looked like you weren't in the right place. So you have to have that talk earlier and earlier. And Demas said it also. Right away, that creates anxiety. It creates apprehension when you're dealing with law enforcement. It creates apprehension when you're dealing with any position of authority. So you have police officers, you have firefighters, you have teachers. Any position of authority can be perceived as a threat when at seven years old, you are told all these do's and don'ts. You know, so it affects every aspect of their life. Subsequent to Trayvon Martin, I told my sons, do not wear any hoodies. Do not wear hoodies. Do not go certain places at night. You want them to live and enjoy life, but they're not in an environment where, that, where that's conducive to that without the fear of their life. When you get pulled over, they're not going to know that you are John Doe, honor student. As far as they're seen, you're a black male. That's enough for them. Nothing else matters. So when you have that talk, it's to keep them alive, it's to keep them aware, and it's to prevent them from not being able to cope in a situation or be put in a situation and not know how to react. So, you know, I, I don't have any data on this. I'm just going with my gut. But my gut tells me that white America is just as uninformed about the talk and the implications of the talk as I was before I accidentally witnessed it, right? If I had not had dinner on that night at that time with them, I might sit here thinking, go, what? What are you talking about? So I guess I want to ask you what I asked Damas that he answered so eloquently about what his white friends could do. Or what's your message to to white America about, I'm kind of struggling with this, Erica. I'm trying to think of, you know, how do we, how do we move this forward when something that is so profound, I mean, you, you talked about since conception, you have been wrestling with this, you know, you get the sonogram, it's a boy, you start talking about, is the name going to have this impact? And then as your boys get older, you know, don't, don't wear a hoodie. How do, how do we move this dialogue in a, in a direction that's, that's going to shed some light Mm-hmm. And I'm still stuck with when America, uh, when white America gets a cold, you get pneumonia. I mean, it feels to me like that's the bridge we got across. I think we're in an opportune time to make change. If you go back in history, when you think about the phases that we've been through and we have evolved as a society, if you think about the abolition of slavery, we made a stride there. Then if we jump forward a few years, you go back to Jim Crow and the civil rights era, we made some strides there. And I think each, I wouldn't say each generation, but periodically in history, an incident occurs that's a catalyst for big change. And I think the catalyst for the big change now is going to be the murder of George Floyd and that callous, cavalier, nonchalant look that was on that police officer's face that brought to light what we live with every day. And we thank God for video. We thank God for the young lady that recorded that incident because were it not for that video proof and the length of time, I remember watching um, Sherilyn Eiffel, who is the president of the National Defense Legal Fund, the arm of the NAACP that does the defense of civil rights cases. She was on 60 Minutes and she said, I defend cases like this every day. And the host said to her, what's different about this one? She said it was long. 
She said it was long and it was direct and it was in your face. There was no looking away from it. You know, when the incident occurred with Rodney King, it happened and there were so many other distractions around that you could look away from what was being done to him. With the incident with Mr. Floyd's murder, it that was it. It was in your face, that look of taking someone's life without even thinking about what you're doing. It had a huge impact on everybody. So I think the current environment is one in which we can make change. We now have a safe space for everybody to ask every question that they ever wanted to ask but could not ask. I've said to my coworkers here that if you are white and you care and you don't know what's going on now, shame on you because every opportunity is there for questions to be asked now without judgment. You're asked for, on both sides because we are able to express what we have been struggling with for years in an environment that says, this is what we're dealing with. How can we fix it? We can't go back. You can't unring a bell. So we have to start at a moment in time and make strides ahead. So I think our white friends and our white counterparts, we cannot do this alone. James Corden had Eric Dyson on a few nights ago, and he said, Black America did not create this problem. So Black America cannot fix the problem. The problem has got to be fixed by white America. The problem has got to be fixed by changes in laws, changes in legislation, legislative changes need to be made, changes in allocation of resources. Research shows that the areas of our community that are most impoverished are areas that were redlined back in the day. So if back in the day you were in a redlined community, resources were taken away from that community, investments were not made in that community, schools were not funded well, so that population never got an adequate education. A lot of times those families never left that neighborhood, so there are limit, there's limited exposure. So now you have kids that are limited in exposure, not attending adequate schools, not enough social resources within the community, so much stress on parents with work. A lot of our Black men have been institutionalized. So you have an absentee father within the home. So the whole dynamics of the home changes. So I think what white America can help us do is reinvest in the communities that were underinvested in for so many years. White America can help us put equity on the educational field. Everything is going to have to start with education and knowledge. So we've got to start investing in our babies as opposed to investing in prisons. Right now, legislators determine how many prisons need to be built based on the third grade reading scores of students. So depending on how well the third graders do, they say, okay, you're going down a path without education, so we're gonna need X, Y, Z number of jails. Let's divert those funds from the jail to build in elementary schools that are technology equipped. Let's invest in counseling and after-school activities. Let's invest in a healthcare system that promotes healthy eating. Let's invest in supermarkets being in the neighborhoods where they need to be so our communities are healthier. So what we can get from white America is reinvestment where it, it's needed. We can get a dialogue an open, honest discussion about the things that we need and how we feel and what needs to happen to help restore our communities. We need to be involved in that dialogue. We don't want decisions to be made for us. We want to be a part of the decision-making process.
And we also need for the pressure to be maintained. A lot of times an incident occurs. Think about when Trayvon Martin um, was killed. That flared up for a little while and then it died down. I think this has got to be sustained. If change is going to be made, it has got to be sustained. So we have to find a way to maintain this zeal and enthusiasm that is there now to make change. I think investment, resources, communication, and redirection of thought and resources is what we need help with right now to help get back on the right track. And I, and I think that it's very well said. And I, and I think the thing for us that the message we need to keep promoting, and you've crystallized it for me, is for white America, everything you said are things that white America takes for granted. But yet that tremendous divide that exists. Well said, Erica. Tiffany, I want to go back again. Damas said so, Damas, you said so many things that were so impactful. But to pick up on what both Damas and Erica talked about, Damas talking about it's just easier to stay home, right? And then Erica pointing out quite accurately as a long-term strategy, that's full of challenges. And, and so you as the mental health professional is kind of on the front lines. What are your thoughts? This is not an easy task. You know, what does the system need to look like? What kinds of things need to be created? So I think the system needs to first work with engagement. You're not going to be able to engage people who don't trust you the same way you could engage someone who trusts you. And why don't Black people trust mental health professionals and uh, police officers and doctors and all this stuff? History, because things that have happened in history. When you look at um, the Tuskegee experiment that we forget about, when you look at different things like that, those have, for one, created distrust within the system. So distrust with medical professionals, distrust with mental health professionals. Another thing is that mental health professionals need to pay attention to how we are diagnosing Black people. So there's a misdiagnosing of Black people with schizophrenia. Black people are four times more likely to be misdiagnosed with schizophrenia than depression or mood disorders. So if someone comes with symptoms of depression or mood disorder, they automatically get the schizophrenia diagnosis. We need to look at how we are diagnosing Black people when you're talking about someone who's not able to go outside because they're afraid, PTSD, are we diagnosing with that? Are we being um, open with diagnosing? Are we diagnosing behavioral disorders like oppositional defiant disorder? We see a lot of that going on in schools where someone has a mental health symptom. They may be depressed, so they act out in anger. They may, you know, they, you're not understanding them and then they're suspended. So we as professionals need to look at how we are treating people with these symptoms. If someone has pneumonia, you're going to give them more care. So looking at Erica's analogy of pneumonia, if you have pneumonia, you're going to get more care. But the mental health professionals have not been more caring to Black people. It's been, hey, for one, maybe you're not going to get treatment. We're going to call the police. And the police does what? They take you to jail. So looking at how we are treating Black people or other people of color who are experiencing racism to begin, how we're diagnosing how we're handling it with care is our first step, for sure. The next step is maybe we need to think outside of the box. Maybe the models that we're using that are evidence-based haven't been tested or worked with on Black people, right? So if you have a model that may work good with another population, it doesn't mean that it works good for you know Black people, right? 
So we need to find things that are going to work. You know, Black people are very creative. You know, we like music. We express ourselves through art. We express ourselves through um, a lot of the young people. They do yoga, but they they did trap yoga. And I was like, what is trap yoga? So kind of engaging people and making them comfortable in ways that they feel connected to instead of, you know, I, I don't want to sit with my thoughts. My thoughts are going to race. My thoughts are thinking about the police. My thoughts are thinking about the crime in my neighborhood. My thoughts are thinking about all these things. But if you bring something that I'm familiar with and then reel me in, maybe that will help me. So kind of being creative with how we're engaging Black people and people of color, connecting them to other therapists who look like them, who can understand. You said it, Scott, being a white man, you never had to know what the talk was, right? You didn't know what that was. So if I'm going to a therapist who doesn't know what the talk is, how am I going to explain it? Maybe I feel like, um, you know, sometimes you feel a little anxiety. Are they going to understand what I'm going through if I tell them this experience that I had? Um, so sometimes it takes, not all the time, but sometimes it takes connecting them to other Black therapists. So you have groups like Black Therapist Rocks, and they are um, an organization with array of Black therapists with different specialties. So sometimes you have to meet people where they are, meet them where they feel comfortable, engage them in different ways. I think that's what the mental health community needs to be doing. Well, well said. What would you say, Damas? What do you think the mental health community could do to make things better? I think get involved in more schools because kids, we learn early from school. So if we're not learning from at home, we're learning at school. So try to get some after school programs going on that help kids teach them about mental health, you know, teach them signs of mental health, how to deal with stressors and try to get the kids' parents involved. I know a lot of parents, they don't want to talk about it. A lot of parents, especially from the Caribbean, especially from the islands, they don't want to, they don't know about it. Sometimes they don't want to be involved with it, but try to find ways to inform them, even write pamphlets out in different languages and send them out, tell the kids to tell the parents, have parent-teacher meetings. I think that can help a lot, especially in schools. That's what I believe that can help. Erica, for Henderson Mental Health, what are your thoughts? Because we have people in your position all across the country, actually all across the world, who, who listen to this and uh, they're going to get excited about what they've heard. You've all been incredibly eloquent and, and uh, on point. And then they're going to say, so what do we do? Just like Tiffany said, change how we do things. Change. Clinicians need to be educated. Scott, you asked about what can white America do. The field of um, therapy and behavioral health is dominated by more women than men and less minorities and more whites. So white therapists are going to have to make an effort to learn about the culture, to learn about the little idiosyncrasies. In Broward County, as Tiffany said, we have a, melt, a virtual melting pot. We have a huge Caribbean population. I remember when I started at Henderson, there was a discussion about a young man who, he was a child, probably was about eight or nine, and the therapist came back and said, you know, something, he really needs help because he doesn't even make eye contact. He's not engaged. He's not connecting with me. That child was from the Caribbean. Back in the Caribbean, we are taught that you don't stare down an adult. If an adult is talking to you, you're not going to stare them down in the face and look at them. And it's the same in a lot of Black African-American communities and a lot of Black homes. It's the same concept. Out of respect, you're not going to stare down an adult. You will listen, but you're not going to stare down. So that therapist perception 
was very wrong. In fact, it was the opposite. And that same diverse melting pot that we have, it's incumbent upon every clinician to know about the culture of every family they are working with. It's homework. You've got to do it. So if you're working with a Muslim family and you're a male therapist, Muslim women are not going to want to have direct interaction or communicate well with you if you're a male. So that's not a good connection right there. So you need to know a little bit about every person that you're working with, the culture, the ethnicity. So education becomes an, in, an integral component of service provision. I think what we talked about with what can be done now, if we start investing in our low-income underserved schools and the kids that are in those schools, this problem wasn't created in 10, 20 years. This problem was created over 400 years. So we're going to need to solve this problem over a period of time. So if we start with the elementary school and these kids in elementary school see where there's an opportunity to do something different, to get an education, to learn, that's going to force more therapists that look like them. It's going to force more teachers that look like them. Your kids are more likely to learn from somebody that looks like them. It's going to become a cycle that's perpetuated towards the good. You're going to hire. You tend to hire people that look like you. Research has proven. You tend to hire people that look like you. You interact better with people that look like you. So if we have a diverse population, we need to have a diverse set of providers and a diverse set of teachers, diverse doctors. Just like Tiffany said, you have more apprehension with going to somebody that doesn't look like you for medical care. So I think investing, education is going to make a big difference. We need to look outside of the box with service provision, with ideas. You know, a lot of people say, oh, how come many Black people don't know how to swim? Because for years we weren't able to go in pools. So how are we going to learn? So there is a history behind everything that has transpired. That multi-generational wealth that exists in in white households does not exist in black households because for 400 years, we were inhibited with the ability to earn and keep what we earned. Educate yourself, um, white America, white clinicians, you've got to educate yourselves on what does redlining mean? What does black Wall Street from Tulsa, Oklahoma, what was that? What happened there? What happened in Tuskegee? You know, if you don't know about the Tuskegee experiment, how can you help somebody figure out why they're not connecting with you when it comes to medical needs? What happened with Brown versus Board of Education? Everybody knows about that story, but what were some of the implications? You know, you talk about sense of entitlement. When you have a generation that's raised thinking our school is better than your school and you can't come to our school, that's the ultimate in entitlement. You're saying that that group of people are not as good as you. They should not mix with you. So things like that, we have got to find a way to undo. And I think it's going to take time. It's going to take determination. Another analogy that I use with the group that I spoke with in Palm Beach is taking medicine doesn't taste good, but it makes you, it makes you get better. So we've got to swallow hard and we've got to take our medicine. We've got to have the tough conversations. We've got to have the tough dialogue knowing that it's leading us to a path of recovery. Because if you don't take that medicine, you're not going to get better. So we're going to have to accept responsibility for the role that, that has been played by everybody. We need to swallow hard and say, okay, let's see how we move on and make this right. Well said. Well said. Final question. And you guys have been very gracious uh, with your time. I really appreciate it. But we always ask a question since we're in the age of doing Zoom calls. If you could have a Zoom call with anyone, and I mean anyone, 
living or dead. So it could be somebody from the past, could be a historical figure, could be your best friend. If you could have a call with anyone you wanted, who would it be and why? And we'll start, we'll go in our same order. We'll start with Tiffany. Wow. Um, this is an excellent question. I think um, I've, I've watched Selma recently. And um, of course there was MLK on there and then there was Malcolm X. And I found if I could have a Zoom call, probably be Malcolm X because I was interested in how he changed his perspective over time. He was very angry, I feel like, at white people in the beginning. And he started hanging around more white people and meeting more white people and getting to know them. And he said, well, I don't think now, now I don't think that every white person is bad, but I think that we do need to work towards change. So I would like to talk to him because you, you do have anger inside of you and it could lead to hate, but understanding how his journey led him to, I don't want to hate, right? I just want us all to love each other and to work on peace. I would want to understand how he was able to move towards that. So probably Malcolm X. Ooh, profound. That's really good. Damas, how about you? Any any person who would be and why? Of course, Dr. King. I would want to tell him that he did a wonderful job and he didn't die in vain. Even though we still have problems in the society, a lot of problems, but things have gotten much, much better. We have more integration. We have Black people and white people socializing together, being together. Black people are having white friends and white and white people are having black friends. What he did is just profound. He's he's done a lot. And I just want to say he didn't die in vain. He, he did an excellent job. It was perfect. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. All right, Erica, how about you? I would want to meet with Nelson Mandela. Oh, yeah. And I would want to meet with him because for someone to be in jail for 27 years to come from that type of incarceration where you were treated horribly and it was 100% based on the color of your skin. He left that jail without bitterness, without anger. And he said, if I hold on to that anger, then I'm allowing the people who imprisoned me to control the rest of my life. And I think I would say Nelson Mandela because he was able to create an environment in South Africa where apartheid was disbanded. He did the community talks that led to recovery. So I would want to find out from him, how did you engage two totally opposite sides to where things were resolved? And I think that's what we need in this country. We need to find a way to engage two totally different sides successfully to get to where we want to be. And it's like I said, it's not going to be an overnight solution. There's a process. So his ability to bring people together, his ability to get coalition from both sides, he ended up becoming the president of a country that incarcerated him and was a beloved president of that country. So that said something about his character, his ability to bring people together, his ability to forgive, because I think we're going to have to deal with forgiveness in a very big way to be able to move on. We're going to have to deal with starting where we are and moving on. And we're going to have to deal with accepting each other's history as their truth and their reality. Mm -hmm. White America needs to listen and hear that 
what our reality and our lived experience is real and it has pain, anguish, and a burden that comes with it that we need to be able to overcome to move ahead. And there's a process to that. We've been living this all our lives. Allow us to go through the process of moving towards recovery and allow us to work together to attain that recovery and get to the place where we need to be. So well said. Well, to all of you, this this, this has been a phenomenal hour. Any last thoughts that anybody wants to put in? This is your chance to add anything. I, I think it's been an incredible dialogue. I've learned much from each of you. I would love to say when you're feeling down and you think everything is hopeless, I find, personally, I find joy in helping others. I've been volunteering at um, South Florida Wellness Network, um, been teaching art there. And I find that helping others and, you know, educating others and something, you know, that's positive has helped me get out my shell, helped me get out my depression, helped me get out my bad moods. And just seeing the joys and laughter of people having fun is just making me my life much better. Excellent. Excellent. Erica, Tiffany, any last words? I just wanted to say, you know, there are a lot of books out there that talk about race. So if you're not comfortable with sharing it, whatever your thoughts are with other people, there are books like White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. There's How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And then one that I love, my dad's an officer, but he has had to talk with me as well. But one is The Black and the Blue. And it's where an officer, he talks about crimes and different things that police officers have done in his experience at racism as a Black officer. His name is Matthew Horace. And so you can check those out as well. Excellent. Erica, anything from you? Yeah, I just wanted to say that I made a statement that white America created a lot of the current problems that we have. I want to make sure that I put out there, too, that we want to be a part of solving the solution. We have to be. This is not something that white America can fix. It is not something that Black America can fix. If we're going to fix the problem, we have got to work together. We have been towing the line and walking on eggshells for hundreds of years. It's liberating to realize that there's an opportunity now to undo that and be our true selves and work in unison to create a perfect union. We have an amazing country with amazing liberties. And if we use those liberties towards helping each other get to the our full potential, I think we'll get to where we need to be and we will be all the better for it. We want history to record 2020 and this era as a year that a lot of bad things were undone and we move towards getting a better environment for everybody of all races because it's stressful on both ends and we have got to find a way to get it done and if we can tap into Nelson Mandela we can get this done. Excellent. Thank you so much. Oh man, what did I tell you? Another amazing episode. Tiffany, Damas, Erica, thank you so much for sharing your spirit, your heart, your dedication, your passion for making things better. So many lessons in this episode of the Optimistic Advocate Podcast. My goodness. Hope you enjoyed it. And hey, remember, read the show notes. Lots of good information in there about the Broward Behavioral Health Coalition. And thanks to them once again for sponsoring this episode. As well, remember to subscribe. Tell your friends about the podcast. Oh, and I'll see you next time with another incredible episode. What can I say? 
All right. Be well. 